What happens when you take five guys, one RV converted tour bus, and musicians all over the country? One incredible documentary. When Jimmy, Billy, Mike, Chris, and Zach got tired of making music videos for ungrateful stars, they knew there had to be more. They bought an RV, converted it to a tour bus, and spent their summer traveling across the country in search of forgotten musicians scattered across the US. Their goal? to create an album of songs using the power of music to bring together singers and musicians that have never even met each other. They made the 10,000 mile journey from Los Angeles to New York City and back. With stops along the way in cities such as Santa Fe, New Orleans, St. Louis, and even Memphis, Tennessee. They recorded with people of all styles, ages, races, and instruments to create an album as inspirational as this film. Hi, I'm Heather Grayson writer, producer, and director who craves passion in filmmaking, and documentarians are just that. I write fiction, but I love to watch the truth. My name is B.C. Wayman. I'm an actor, a writer, an entertainer, all sorts of creative endeavors. But what I love most? Being a storyteller. It's why I love documentaries. They're extraordinary stories from everyday, extraordinary people. This is Behind the Doc. And today we are behind the scenes with the Unknown Tour. We were only two weeks into a trip that was supposed to last the whole summer, and we were already losing faith in our tour bus. We bought the bus from a stranger a few weeks before we left LA on a 10,000 mile journey to New York and back. There were five of us that quit our jobs and hit the road in search of the forgotten musicians scattered across the United States. Today we are gonna talk to the fellas behind the unknown tour. There's a lot of questions we got to ask them, but we're very excited to get to meet Jimmy, Billy, Mike, Chris, and Zach. But before we do that, why don't you guys go around the room, introduce yourselves, give us a super snippet of a bio, and then we'll get going. Hey, I'm Billy. I was the cinematographer on the Unknown Tour. I am Mike, and I was the tour manager. I'm Jimmy. I was the director. I'm Chris. I was the resident songwriter. I'm Zach, and I was the music producer. Wonderful. Thank you so much, gentlemen. And I wanted to ask this, the very first question. Tell us how this whole adventure began. Billy and I were working at a production company in LA that did mostly like music videos and little short behind the scenes videos for musicians. And typically they were sending us around the country to film with like pretty big artists, people that were signed by labels. And there's like a lot of behind the scenes, you know, People put a lot of effort into like the way that they look and they want to make sure that hair and makeup is done and they want to make sure that everything about the narrative is perfect for these artists. These people really like don't care about their music in the way that I know that people do care about music elsewhere. The more I've learned about the music business, the more I've learned how different it is from the reason that we get into music. So many of us are independent. It's like we have to be our own business. And so we wanted to get to the heart of, you know, how do we get deeper into like real music, like real songwriting that's really about something. It's not just made to resonate with the most people. 
And so we came up with this idea to quit our jobs and travel. And so we bought this bus. We just wanted to meet musicians and record them every single day. And that was like, our North Star was good music. And that, that led us around the country. How did you end up deciding what your tour path was going to be? What cities you were actually going to visit? A lot of people, when you think about the country as a whole, there are specific cities that stand out as music towns that each have their own unique sound and genre of music that they cater to. So we kind of like, we chose the big ones, you know? New Orleans, Nashville, New York, Detroit, all these cities that are are famous for producing great music throughout um, our country's uh, long history. And we would typically have like three days in a city. So the first day we would go out and we would scout and we would see like, there's a group of buskers in this area of New Orleans, or there's a bunch of bars in this area of New York or whatever. And we would all kind of congregate there and, and see what we heard and really like follow our ears, so to speak. A really interesting thing too, was we wound up in a lot of like periphery cities that weren't necessarily where we thought we'd end up, you know, like when we're driving from New Orleans to Nashville, we found ourselves in Jackson, Mississippi, and cities like that were really incredible for finding musicians because people don't go there as much looking for music. I mean, a lot of it was word of mouth, too. Besides for just driving around a city or walking around in some of the main areas, people would submit friends and relatives to us, or Henny, for example, uh, we got invited to a house party and she just happened to be there. We didn't know beforehand that, you know, there's going to be, you know, this musician that impacted the whole tour like she did. And something that also was really incredible was once we would maybe get a recommendation to record another musician, then that would just lead us to somebody else in another city that we'd end up running into. And so it was kind of how we wanted to showcase how music was a collaborative effort and it's not a competition. It was just proven time and time again that to create this album, we all had to collaborate from us working together and then also the artists that we knew working together as well, saying, hey, there's something really cool coming to town and you need to be a part of it. So you went on tour, you traveled across the country, you literally made an album. Let's talk for a couple seconds, get into this nitty gritty of it, right? How does this work? You have a songwriter, but you have songs and guitars and drums from all these cities. What is that process like? What starts first? Do you write the song? Do you write the guitar riff? Do you play the drums? Or do you just randomly select them and then you later audio engineer it to put it all together? I mean, it's a pretty amazing process. So it, it, it is a very lengthy process and we had whiteboards, the three windows of the bus we were using as whiteboards the entire time to try to keep track of the album as it was evolving. But generally the way that it would work is that there would be one person usually a singer-songwriter, maybe they'd be voice and guitar, and they would like play through three or four songs that they already had written, or maybe they would just have a sketch of a song that they had been working on, and they would record that, and we would say, okay, cool, that's a good skeleton that I think we can build upon. And so let's say that that happened in Austin, and then from Austin we'd go to New Orleans, and we would know that we had this sketch that we liked that somebody had done in Austin, and then in New Orleans, we would have those recordings and we would add guitar or add drums or add bass to that song to build it into something that is like more of a full sound. And then where it started to really get fun is that 
you would lay down drums and like with the rhythm section, a lot of times you could take drums that were recorded for one song and use them on another song if you sped them up a little bit digitally or when you start adding rap verses is where it would go like totally off the rails. Dice shaking young car player, Nashville no guitar player, in the trenches doing hard labor, talk in the hood like I'm Darth Vader. Boy, I never been we probably recorded 10 or 15 rappers over the course of the journey, and we had two tempos that we were recording the rappers to. And so we knew like one of them was 92 and one was 140 BPM. And so we knew that if a singer-songwriter like played a song and it happened to fall in the 92 BPM range, we would know automatically like we have a rap verse that we can add to this song to make this more than what it is right now. And so it really was like a giant jigsaw puzzle where we're like left turns all the time from like a country song. Oh, now there's a rap verse. Oh, this is like a singer-songwriter ballad. Oh, now here comes somebody with a drum solo. Like there's just wild moments all throughout it. And, we, and we, that reflected how our days were laid out as well because we would spend the first half of a day recording something really sleepy or really like somber. And then we would go and we re would record with Haas Sizzle in New Orleans and he'd be like screaming at the top of his lungs and like playing bounce music. We wanted the album to reflect that experience as well. I did my best, I tried my best, you can't deny it. Now truth becomes when I'm undone and you can't hide it. My question was that, do you regret any of this? Do you regret you know, just throwing up your arms and saying, I'm going to take this trip, I'm going to make this journey, I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to do this? Is there any kind of like, oh, if I would have stayed in this, I could have been here? Or was this just absolutely 100% the best choice you made? Absolutely. For me, it was a blast. I mean, compared to what else I had going on at the time in Los Angeles, I was somewhat new, kind of trying to, you know, work my way up the ladder as far as the music engineering and production thing went. And then I met these guys and it was, it was like there's no choice. Zach was the one who really took the most risk. The four of us, um, we all kind of knew each other and knew a little bit more like what we were getting into. But Zach, we kind of put a call out for a music producer and Zach met us like two times before the tour started. Yeah, so, for like an hour apiece, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so he really didn't know us as people, or it was kind of blind faith for him to get on that bus and go. How close were you to saying no, Zach? Were you like 70 30, or were you all in from the get go? I mean, maybe I wasn't 100%, but I was super interested after I heard about the idea. Then I met up with all the guys, and they were really excited about it. The bus was already finished by the time I got there, so I didn't, you know, have to put any work into that. By the time we hit the road, I was, like, very convinced that this is what I should be doing. We learned a lot about the process of, like, making and releasing an independent documentary, and I think that, like, those are definitely, like, hard lessons to learn. We had multiple, like, experiences where people promised us funding and then like it fell through and we ended up self-funding like our whole project here. 
What happened on this tour is like stories that the five of us have been telling for the past two and a half years. And like, I'm sure that we don't understand that we're bragging when we tell these stories, but like everybody knows that this was the coolest thing that any one of us have done. I think there's a huge mutual respect from all the artists we met too, that when they heard that part of our story, you know, they were a lot more open to work with us because we're just normal people, you know? It's not like we're traveling around with, you know, like a network TV cast of people making a story. Well, I think it shows clearly, and I think if you had had a lot of other voices in there, the final product is not going to be the same. Your passion and sincerity between the five of you really shows. It really comes through the screen. But speaking of stories, one of my favorite stories, there's a lot of great cities featured in the film, but one of my favorites is New Orleans. Getting into the Pride Parade, which I heard you had to sneak your way into, so I'd like to hear about that. The parade was something that when we got to New Orleans... New Orleans has like a ton of parades, like it's a big parade town, but the biggest parade is the Gay Pride Parade. And so when we arrived there, somebody was like looking at a schedule of events in New Orleans for that weekend. And someone's like, oh, the Pride Parade's on Saturday. And so we all thought like, ooh, I wonder, you know, we have this big brightly colored bus. Like, I wonder if we could get on the list to like be in this parade. And so we made a couple calls And the answer was no. But we figured, like, we'll just drive there and show up anyway, and we'll, like, see if we can, like, you know, grease our way in. And we were all really, like, dressed to the nines for it. And we had a big group of people all, like, having a dance party on the roof of the RV. And we were like, all right, let's see if we can get into this actual parade. Um, We were there, like, an hour early. And so Mike and I walked over to the people who were like wearing the bright yellow vests, you know, the people in charge. And we just kind of tried to talk our way in. I'll be honest, I kind of lied. We I was lied like, to them. I was like, we applied <laughs> and we, we got approved, but like we never got the paperwork. Um, and this lady is like looking at me like, I don't think that you're telling the truth. But anyway, she, the lady was like, was like a little skeptical, but she could see like our bus and she could see that we were like tailor-made for this parade. And I told her, I was like, we came all the way from California for this. And so she went over and like talked to some people in charge and she came back and she's like, look, this is what I'll do. I'm gonna add you guys to like the very last car of the parade. And so you guys will like be the last one in the parade. And then that turned out to be that right behind us was a cop car the whole parade, which like (laughs) he kept telling us like, stop standing on the roof of the bus. Like quit jumping around, quit drinking on the roof of the bus. So we got in and that was like, a triumphant victory. Well, I like how dressed to the nines is Mike on top of the bus with his pants hiked up so high that it looks like he was wearing like an adult diaper, just chugging beers and like doing it. It looked like a great time though, Mike. You look like you're having a hell of a time. It was a, it was a fantastic time. And you know, I'm a lover of all human beings and, and support the cause. So uh, gotta, gotta show respect. All right, let's dig into Henny. Tell us about Henny because she was a pretty cool find and really, uh, really with a great voice too. There are so many people that invite us to all these things, but we got invited to a house party and a good handful of performers that night, but it really was Henny when she took the stage, she just like blew us all away immediately. She was only in New Orleans for like a week to visit and then she had planned on going to New York. She was traveling the U.S. literally just 
doing open mics and singing and like working on her craft. It meshed very well with with what we were doing. Because she was just going from show to show based on who she would meet and how that would go and the relationships that she built. And that's exactly what we were doing on the tour. After we explained more to what we were doing, kind of showed her previous things we had done, she thought it was really cool. And then we were just like, do you want to come? You're going to New York anyway. And literally the next morning, we picked her up and she had canceled her flight to New York City and we had the sixth member of the crew. Super spontaneously, you all came and I saw the big bus and then I met you all in these shirts and I thought like, hey, are they playing soccer all the time? But it was awesome when she was like part of the tour. I mean, she was in our bus for like two weeks and for those two weeks, like, we really connected with musicians like even more because I mean we're five dudes from LA like Henny being a singer songwriter a girl from Germany like having a totally different life experience like we recorded with a woman named Stephanie Bolton in Jackson Mississippi. Hearts never break, they just pay simply pay and occasionally ache for their soul. The bond between Henny and Stephanie was like palpable. Like they really like saw each other, respected each other in a way that like two women can do and like not necessarily a group of five guys. So it was awesome adding Henny to the journey, getting like a little bit more diversity within our crew. And You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Was there another artist that you just really connected with, maybe individually, maybe as a group? I remember Sonny and Fatai really vividly. Yeah. That, that was in Chicago. Sonny. We met both of them yeah. in Chicago. Sonny is this, like, five-foot-tall small kind of like meek individual and when she opened her mouth like it was so powerful her voice is like a booming voice and she wrote all of her own music I felt the same way with Fatai. Like, I mean, Fatai, when, when you hear her speak, you can tell she's gonna have a beautiful singing voice. She has like a really nice timbre to her voice, but she just like stood on the lakefront in Chicago and belted out a song that immediately when hearing it in headphones while she's recording, I was like, ooh, this is like radio ready. Bird, I'm 
There was somebody else as well. When we were in Vancouver, we went to an, we didn't have any leads, so we went to an open mic, and I played for a second. And then we met this guy. We didn't have the time to stay, but this guy Thunder, you know, just by his name Thunder, like we automatically knew he's gonna be amazing. Burn through another day, faded on ten. It's kind of crazy because like his story and all the things he had to say were just as good as his song and like his performance and the way he would deliver songs. You know, I grew up and there was a point in my life when I was homeless. You know, we lived in a tent, we lived in a bus. People thought when we came to town that we were Ethiopian drug dealers just because we were a big family. And through our, our music, people were able to see us differently. He like completely reimagined another song that we had on the tour and just the way that he approached everything was just kind of like, yeah, like, you know, Music is really just about like putting your own spin on things and just making it your own. So you had five and then you got six with Henny, but what I need to know is about the seventh member. The name of the bus is Fanny. You can call her Fanny because we treat her like a lady. Fanny is a 36-foot tour bus converted from an RV that we bought from an older gentleman named Russ. Fanny is extremely important to the tour. We work on Fanny, we sleep on Fanny, sometimes we cook on Fanny. Is uh, Fanny still uh, bopping around Los Angeles right now? She's taking a rest right now. <laughs> she's, uh, she's in a little RV storage place up north. We lived in Fanny for like six months and it got spray painted in LA, which was very sad. And there, the mirror got shattered off the side of it. She's kind of in a little bit of disrepair right now. I have four words for you, and just tell me the first things that come to your mind. Detroit Bureau of Sound, go. Cactus. <laughs> Does he have multiple cacti? Does he like like water cups? He has different ones that make different pitches? Is that possible? I believe he only had yeah, one he had cactus. time, yeah. But we'll have to see. A little background there is, uh, yeah, we, we heard about this man, Zach, Cactus Zach, we call him. We heard about him, like, because I, I had a friend who lived in Detroit, and he texted me, oh, my buddy Zach has this, uh, this group called Detroit Bureau of Sound, and he plays a cactus. And, like, in my mind, I'm, I'm expecting one thing, and we showed up, and him playing the cactus was something totally different. The music that I make is oftentimes much more small. How am I making music that's the most interesting to the least amount of people, rather than how I see pop music is how can it be the least interesting so that most people can project what they want onto it. It was hard not to laugh at first when Zach Brunel started playing the cactus. It didn't sound anything like music, but the way he plucked the needles, the meticulous care he took in playing his instrument was impossible to forget. And uh, it was really cool because, I mean, we didn't see anything like that. I don't know if anybody's ever seen anything like that before. So it was really interesting to just get like a different perspective from like, you know, it kind of was a lot of like singer songwriter. And then all of a sudden we're uh, getting a cactus plucked for us, which was, uh, which was awesome. It was just different. A little background on Cactus Zach too. I still watch all of his stories on Instagram and he's got a vast knowledge of classical music as well as electronic music. He's always posting actually very interesting stuff. So he's, you know, he's deeper than the cactus. So you go across the country, and one of the favorite things I love 
because I'll do some and Heather does too. We do some live performances and things. There is something about live performance that is unreplicatable, if that's such a word. And it's fun to imagine that you got to see these live performances of people who are, and if you've done an open mic, as some of us have, you are doing it for free, maybe three people, and they are there every Tuesday or twice a week and just grinding at their craft. And I've took severe inspiration to get back off my keister and get grinding again because these folks are out there grinding in hopes of something and I think that was an amazing but just talk about seeing so many live performances because when you can feel it in your chest it transcends even I think a car or headphones that kind of moments I can't imagine seeing hundreds of live performances yeah it was definitely every day I mean outside of you know whether it was on the street or in an actual venue coffee shop, bar, it was definitely multiple times a day, every day. Prior to that, I'd just been, you know, on Spotify constantly, and that was, you know, one of my only ways of consuming music. So that was a huge change for me. It takes a lot of guts to get on stage, especially by yourself with just a mic and a guitar. And for someone like myself who doesn't really really play music, like watching that day in and day out. I just, you know, had so much respect for all these men and women that we saw get up on stage and pour their hearts out. It's honestly one of the reasons why it made so much sense to have Chris and the crew, because the rest of us like have maybe been on stage a few times in our lives to like play or sing just a little bit, but like Chris, Chris is a busker in, in LA and has been all over the world and has played open mics and shows and like is, is a stage performer. And so we wanted to have somebody on the bus that understands like, like that world and understands like what it's like to do it and to sort of like bridge the gap between guys trying to make a movie about something and people that actually understand and do something. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we were seeing multiple performances a day, you know, live performances and watching people like either crush or like, you know, more often than not, people kind of like playing to a half empty room of people who don't care or like buskers are oftentimes just playing to people that are walking by ignoring them. And that, I don't know who said it in Hayward the movie. Hayward Williams from Milwaukee told us that he was playing live one time and people were throwing ice cubes at him. It's long and hard and playing in bars and having people throw ice cubes at you and stuff like that. Why would, why would anyone do that? You gotta be a real dick. I think of in, uh, in Blues Brothers when they go and they play behind the chicken wire at the place and people are throwing glass bottles at him. I'm always like, man, it's so hard to play live. Like, People just don't want to like you always. Yeah, it caught my atten- it caught my attention whenever, um, and I'm not sure who it was, but he, I believe he was from South America, but he said that you know people are sitting in their in their homes in their living rooms getting famous, and we're out here, and I've traveled to seven countries. Some people get famous on YouTube, playing at home, <laughs> and we've been playing seven countries, and nobody knows. <laughs> That is still happening, and we, you know, the internet has not completely changed the world. What kind of reactions did your artists have when, with this gentleman saying, you know, I've been to all these countries and I'm not famous, but, you know, YouTube user, whoever, they get all this, you know, acclaim 
what what does that make you feel like and what do you want to provide to them? Well, there was a part in the movie in Jackson when we were with Stephanie Bolton, who is amazing, and she said to us, she said... Record labels used to pay A&R people to go out, travel, find artists. They cut that out. This tour, y'all are going out to open the door so we can walk through and you can see us. She said that doesn't exist anymore, that, and we were the first people to act, actually come and like physically meet her and see her and film and record with her. And she just was like, that's a total lost art in the, in the digital and like video age. So it was cool to get our feet on the ground and, and make people excited about playing music for somebody again. This movie is sort of like taking it back a couple decades, I think. And what we got is something that reflects that. It's like a lot of people that are still like writing music that's actually about their own life and like actually putting time into packing up their gear and going to a venue to play instead of just playing on Instagram. I think you mentioned like the type of feeling you get when you watch someone play music live is like that's different than it is to experience that music through your headphones on Spotify or Instagram. Social media has really like changed the way we experience music and I don't know if it's necessarily positive or negative, but I do know that you lose out on that feeling when you aren't experiencing it live and in person. I think what happens with A&R folks like that then is you tend to see how the music resonates for you individually. You like you kind of like this introverted way of listening versus what live music is, is how it resonates with people, right? And how it affects more than you. And I think that's what they need to do. And what they're doing now is essentially swiping right for success, right? I mean, that's what they're going. And you had a great part where everyone talked about success and what it meant to them because for some people it's winning a grammy and for someone it's just getting 25 bucks at the end of the night like someone to finally pay them for their hard work so what was that like in hearing everyone's version of success and how is it defined i guess your version of success now that you've made a movie put out an album and are now uh you know working the awesome interview circuit well this is the best interview we've had so far <laughs> so best, by well, far the best podcast yeah, yeah. best podcast yeah. interview for sure <laughs> And uh, yeah, I feel like within this moment, talking to you guys and hearing all the kind words you guys have to say about the project, that enough, that is like success enough for me as a filmmaker who just wants his movie to be seen. So I appreciate that, but I'm sure that you guys have different versions of it. When we put the movie out, like the weekend that it came out in November and like everybody was pre-ordering it or watching it or whatever, I forget which one. I think the weekend that people were able to actually watch it and like people were sending me Instagram DMs, if I'm being honest. Like people were Instagram DMing me and being like, yo, I just watched the movie, like this thing's incredible. Like I, you know, I had kept up with the tour, but it's crazy to like see what it finally became. Like those moments are definitely the moments that felt very successful to me. I think just like, you know, in essence, we all seek to inspire and to have so many people just be inspired, just like there are so many people that are like, yo, I just saw the tour, I'm picking up the drums again. Yo, I just saw the tour, you told me to play the trumpet, I'm going back and just like, even inspiring you guys, you know, and just everything. And we sought to inspire and we did inspire. There was a really cool moment. I had the privilege of, of showing it in a really cool old theater in my hometown in Wisconsin. My parents were super supportive 
just in general, like I, I had a, you know, whatever, for lack of a better term, a good job. And I call them, I tell them, hey, I'm quitting. You know, I just got a promotion, but I'm quitting and I'm going to go on the road and, and make this film. And they were like, cool, you know, do it. And so that like, is just super helpful. And when the movie finally came out, they rented a, a theater and invited you know, like everybody they knew. And, and there was, they put out like flyers and people I didn't even know, 100, probably 100 people came out and got to watch it on the big screen. And you know, I don't really want to be the center of attention or anything, but like everybody, all these people from kids to elderly people were coming up to me and like saying it was great, you know, and it's whatever their opinion is, of it is fine. But it, it was really cool to just create something for people to see, I guess, and uh, have any sort of feeling about it. What was the reaction like from some of these singers and songwriters and musicians when they finally heard the finished product? Because you're saying, hey, play this drum line, but it could be months till they hear it. What were some of the reactions to some of the folks hearing their songs? And then has any of these people that are on these songs called each other up and been like, hey, we sound fantastic together. We should start a band. There was a huge amount of love outpoured onto us by the musicians involved. I mean, frankly, I think that Zach is the best producer that many of these musicians have ever worked with. And I worked closely with Zach through this whole project, and I can say, like, with, you know, total sincerity, like, him recording and mixing and producing these artists' voices was, like, the biggest gift that we could give any of these artists. I mean, people were super positive and, and loved when they heard their voice on the albums. Well, my side of the story is I'm just so happy that it all worked, because none of us really knew that it, you know, it was going to turn out great at the end of this. Now, with your album, which I enjoyed immensely, NBC did as well, what is your favorite song? Mine, personally, was Wonder. So lost and found in wonder. Mm. I think I got to go with Over. Yeah. I think Over is my favorite song. It's just so good. I like uh, NYC with my guy, LaVon, AKA Journey. He's been my, my buddy for a while. Who's your influence? Nike, I just do it. I ran back, then ran to it. Red water and stay fluid. If you're facing a faucet, best be taking precautions or facing your loss. And I'm basic or awesome. Whatever the case is, it's costing a lot. I'm team NYC as well. We took a, uh, we took a sample that was recorded in Washington Square Park in New York. Like there was like a little jazz trio playing and we, we used the jazz song they were playing as a sample to create a rap beat that then a rapper in LA, a rapper in New York, and then a singer in Portland all collaborated on and a singer in Seattle. So it was like, that was one of the ones that like, that song really made the journey from coast to coast. Yeah. And it's just got a great vibe. Well, I just want to say that this is much more than an album for me, much more than a movie. It was definitely something that got me thinking about my next next projects. And I want to thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you all giving us your time, your effort, your input. That is awesome. Thank you, gentlemen, once again. The Unknown Tour, their road trip is better than your road trip because they made a freaking album. So excellent, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time and uh, good luck out there. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you, guys. I want to write music that's impactful and touches people. If I can carry a message, it's going to last for tomorrow and ongoing. I want to change this world into a better place with positive music. Inspire new people to appreciate the music so that 
the music could perpetuate. That's the essence of success right there. It carries on forever, it's timeless. Behind the Dock is produced by Evergreen Podcast in association with Gravitas Ventures. Special thanks to executive producers Nolan Gallagher and Michael D'Aloya. Produced by Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. And you'll find us everywhere and anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.